0: Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationist podcast. Um, so we've got a new name. Um, as our loyal listeners know, we recently lost my beloved co-host, Ursa. Um, she's not dead. Um, she's just working a new job that um, is not going to allow her continue to continue to go forward with the podcast. She's crazy, crazy busy right now. Um... And so after giving it a lot of thought, I've decided to pivot the focus of this podcast. So rather than focusing broadly on dog behavior, the Canine Conservationists podcast is going to focus on the field of conservation detection dogs. We're going to interview wildlife biologists, community scientists, dog behavior researchers, and handlers throughout this amazing field. And I do plan on continuing to talk a lot about dog behavior um, through that same enthusiastic science-based lens that you guys are used to experiencing from me, um, including taking um, behavior questions from our Patreons. So um, a little bit of an incentive to sign up for our Patreon. Um, and I really hope that you decide to stick along for this ride. I, um, again, I plan on bringing the same level of enthusiasm and nerdiness and dog-centric thinking to this endeavor. Um, and as long as all of my interviews plan, pan out the way that I'm hoping, I've got some really amazing episodes planned with, you know, Dr. Susan Friedman talking about her humane hierarchy of, interventions in training, um, the body language of scent work with Steve White, um, a fascinating episode on combining thermal imaging and scent detection dogs with wildlife researcher and so much more. You guys can still find all the Canine Conversations episodes. They're actually moving on over to Journey Dog Training. So if you go to journeydogtraining.com and then hover over podcasts, you'll see the Pandemic Puppy podcast as well as Canine Conservationists as well as Canine Conversations. So if you want to find the backlog of episodes, you can find them there as well as within the podcast app of your choice. Um, and I really truly want to thank all of our listeners for the support thus far. I really dearly love Canine Conversations and I'm going to miss producing it. I love um, just getting to nerd out on dog behavior But my long-term career goals are firmly oriented towards conservation detection dog work at this time. Um, So again, Journey Dog Training is still going to be out there um, providing support in the form of phone calls, courses, webinars, and free blogs. But more and more of my time is going to focus on conservation detection dog work. So to that end, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Canine Conservationists nonprofit. Um, so I just sent off all the paperwork in the last couple of weeks for 501c3 nonprofit status, and I hope that you're going to continue supporting this podcast by listening and sharing, and joining Patreon. This is going to help us cover the costs of not just this podcast, but also our new field vehicle that lets Barley Niffler and I do our important work. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more in a moment. Um, So stick around here a little bit more. Um, We are actually putting out a big fundraising plea after some unexpected bad news. Um, So stay tuned for that. Um, So um, once we've paid off the vehicle um, and the repairs that I'm hinting at, Supporters of the Canine Conservationists nonprofit can expect to help offer subsidies to our consultation services, um, funding for internships, um, you know, some important field gear like crash proof crates for the dogs. And all of this is going to help us get involved in amazing projects that might not have been able to afford conservation detection dogs otherwise and offer um, paid internships to really deserving um, individuals. So with all of those announcements out of the way, let's do a quick refresher on conservation dog work and how I got involved. And again, stick around to hear a little bit about a fundraising plea towards the end. All right, so conservation detection dog work is broadly similar to search and rescue dog work or drug dog work or any of those sorts of detection dog fields in that you are taking a dog. And training that dog to find a scent. So um, that could be using a ball to reward the dog when they find an invasive plant. Could be using food to reward the dog when they find the scat of an endangered animal. um, Or kind of anything in between. So that work kind of broadly falls into three different categories. Um, It can be divided up as endangered species ecological monitoring, invasive species work, and anti-poaching work or wildlife crime work. So, canine conservationists is going to focus broadly on the first two. Um, So, in ecological monitoring work, we might be searching um, for SCAT. Um, Biologists can find out all sorts of amazing information about SCAT. Um, So, um, SCAT is animal poop. And from that, uh, scientists can pull out things like dietary information, movement data, so where an animal is moving throughout the year, um, hormone data, DNA, so like relatedness, social status, stress levels, all sorts of things. And the really cool thing about working with SCAT is that it actually allows you to get all of that information without disturbing the animal. So working with conservation detection dogs is considered a non-invasive sampling procedure, which is really, really cool and really important to me. Also, with an ecological monitoring work could be f- having the dogs find things like carcasses. So that's what Barley and Niffler and I are going to be doing this coming summer. Is we're actually going out to wind farms to find bat carcasses to help with ecological monitoring um, impact understanding. <laughs> that was a lot of a lot of big words, but basically we're just counting dead bats to see um, what the windmills are doing to the local bat populations and potentially looking at solutions. So that's really, really exciting. And then on the invasive species front, that could be anything from looking at um, boat inspections to try to prevent new zebra mussel infestations in a body of water to coming in after a a crew of volunteers has tried to pull all of the invasive weeds on a given hillside and then the dogs and I are going through and trying to find all the ones that those, um, those volunteers missed or kind of anything in between. So the invasive species work tends to kind of either be on the front end, trying to prevent or identify early invasive species infestations, or it could be on kind of the back end as we're assisting with the removal of a given in- invasive species. Um, then the wildlife crime, this is not something that I'm planning on getting canine conservationists involved in, but, you know, we'll see. Um, and that is much more working with, um, with law enforcement to do anti-poaching work. So that could be searching at ports of entry or um, doing vehicle searches or searching shipping containers for things like ivory and pangolin scales. It's super important work, but honestly feels a little bit outside of my realm of expertise right now. And I do want to, you know, be be cognizant of where, where my skills lie and where my knowledge lies. So... Okay. Um, that's what a conservation detection dog does. Um, the work itself is really varied as well. So I have a background as a field biologist. That's what I went to college for and what I thought I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, even as like a little kid, um, my dad was, uh, my dad is a conservation biologist and how he dealt with me when I had too much energy or like wanted to hang out with him and he was busy was that he would send me out with a dragonfly net and tell me to go catch as many dragonflies as I could. Um, which is really hard. Dragonflies are really fast and tell me to come back and um when i'd caught some and then we would identify them to species we would sex them so figuring out which sex they are um which you can do with bugs um with some bugs and then we would preserve them and pin them and put up these big insect displays um one of the other things that he would do when um when i was being a little bit uh (laughs) underfoot one could say is that we would um he had a printout of the 40 acre farm that i grew up on uh like an aerial photo of the property and he um at least one summer that i remember sent me out to find every single bird nest on the property and then monitor it so like when i was like 10 my dad was just having me go out and do you know basically long-term biological monitoring um field work (laughs) um unfortunately i never got any of that data published um but um, so that's kind of where this love came for me. And when I was a kid, you know, my big idols were, were Jane Goodall and Rachel Carson. And I had this book called Girls Who Looked Under Rocks that's all about just like amazing female naturalists. And that's really what I wanted to do. When I first kind of started falling in love with dog training, I had a, like a little bit of an identity crisis because my whole life I've been like the bug kid or, you know, the bird kid. Like I, I really wanted to be an. There were points in time where I wanted to be a lepidopterist, which is someone who studies butterflies, and then an odonautist, which is someone who studies dragonflies. Um, And then as I got a little older, I pivoted out of bugs and thought I really wanted to do avian cognition research, so bird brain stuff. Um, That was actually the original Fulbright I wrote, so I've written two Fulbright grant proposals. One was for um, studying bird cognition um, at University of Auckland. So, and then, you know, as I was kind of growing up, I was going through all of these different phases. So, I had the, the interesting experience. Um, I, was, I was a bright kid um, and really ambitious. And my school um, had the highest teen pregnancy rate in the state at the time that I went there. Um, and so, they just didn't have a whole lot of resources. They had a lot more resources dedicated towards remedial math and those sorts of things versus AP courses. Um, which is totally fine. And that's what the community needed. Um, so how they dealt with the fact that I was smart and ambitious was that they just put me in classes with older kids. So when I was like a freshman in high school, I was taking mostly classes with juniors. Um, so that led me to being able to take my junior year of high school off. Um, so I spent the first semester of my junior year at this amazing environmental semester school called Conserve School. And um, that school focuses on experiential learning and environmental science. So we would do things like reading, um, John Muir wrote an essay about living, uh, about uh, riding out a windstorm in the top of a really tall tree in the Sierra Nevada, and we would read, we'd get the entire class into this old red pine um, that overlooked the water, and we would sit on its branches and it would hold us as we read that essay um and we like our gym class was canoeing and rock climbing and survival skills um it was just spectacular i was so lucky to go there and unfortunately that school has since closed down um but it really combined this amazing experiential learning and environmental focus and um and really rigorous education all in one Um, And then my second semester of my junior year of high school, I went to Panama. um, And I had the luck of my host city being one of the cities in Panama that offered an an agricultural option for their high school. So in Panama in high school, you have kind of broad majors. um, So you kind of have focuses um, within your high schools and you decide as you're going into high school which ones you're interested in. So I got to do agriculture, which meant that I was doing things like working with rottweilers that herded goats in order to manage invasive weeds or um i was milking dairy cows every morning um with my host family i was doing cattle drives again working with these working rottweilers um i was butchering chickens which as a vegetarian um and i was vegetarian back at that time as well i've been a vegetarian for 11 years was was a fascinating experience but really good for me i'm really glad i got to do it um so I'm kind of blabbering on and on about this just to <laughs> keep going, uh, to help you understand a little bit about where this this love of this field comes from. Um, so then when I got to college, again, I started falling in love with dog training, but really felt a lot of cognitive dissonance about that because I wanted to be Jane Goodall. you know I wanted to be the person who like went out there and lived among among the trees and among the animals and like did long-term behavioral research. So that is where the dog behavior stuff does make sense. I've always been really, really fascinated by animal behavior, but I just had always been focused on wild animal behavior. So, you know, throughout college, I took all sorts of amazing classes. Colorado College, my uh, my alma mater, um, does a really cool program where um, instead of taking several classes at a time throughout the semester, they do the block plan. So you take one class at a time for three and a half weeks, then you have a four and a half day weekend, and then you start your next class on the following Monday. Um, so, for example, my ornithology class um, was three and a half weeks long, and that included a nine-day field trip. To um to the Chiricahua Mountains in Arizona to do flammulated owl net um mist netting um songbird mist netting we did studies on (laughs) whether how gambles quail reacted to different microclimates Um, it was just absolutely amazing and really continued to get my feet wet in the field biology aspect of things. and you know the other plus side of the block plan um, is that you get those three, those four and a half day weekends once a month. So I um, really continued honing like my outdoor skill set, did a lot of rock climbing, a lot of whitewater kayaking, um, and just was really, really lucky to do all of that there as well. Um, so that really solidified my love of doing ecological work and being outdoors, um, which brings me to what the actual fieldwork of being a conservation detection dog handler looks like. So it does, of course, vary quite a bit from job to job, but when Barley and I were doing zebra mussel inspections in Yellowstone National Park, we were basically hanging out under a pagoda with the other rangers, talking to people about invasive species, doing a lot of education and outreach. I had a cooler full of um, dead zebra mussels that I would um, ask volunteers to hide on boats when I wasn't looking, and then... um, Barley and I would do demonstrations of him doing his work, and then when a boat did come through that was seeking a launch permit, Barley and I would help with the inspection of making sure that they didn't have zebra mussels on their boat. Um, So that was really cool. It was, um, honestly, as far as this job goes, pretty cushy work, um, quite repetitive for the dogs, but all the outreach really helped quite a lot. So... um, that's one option. Um, other options can be a lot more intense. So when Barley and I were doing black-footed ferret research last fall, so fall 2020, um, that basically um, was getting up before before dawn so that we could be at our field site as, as the sun was rising um, in order to keep the dogs cool. And I had a GPS that had a 300-acre plot mapped out for me, um, usually some weird shape, like the letter E or something, just because that's where the prairie dog towns were and they wanted us to survey a prairie dog town. And then it was our job to walk across um, across that search area in transects. So those transects may be spaced um, 100 meters apart, 300 meters apart. It kind of depended on the goal of the study. And my job is to walk around with my GPS, try to walk in a straight line, keep an eye on Barley, make sure he's searching all of the prairie dog holes, obviously also watching out for things like rattlesnakes and skunks and God knows what else. Um, And whenever he did make an alert, so um, he laid down in a hole and said that there was a ferret there, then I would go ahead and if I could confirm it, I would reward him. And if I couldn't, um, I praised him and we kept going. Um... And then when we did get that ferret, um, when we did get those data uploaded to to the computers, um, then that night, other field biologists would go out and put camera traps out to confirm whether or not the dogs were correct and try to get a population count on these black-footed ferrets, which are just ultra, ultra endangered. Um, and it can be The fieldwork can kind of be anything in between, and honestly, the ferret work isn't even the best example of how rugged it can be because it was open, flat desert. Um, I have also tagged along on some other research projects where we are, like, literally following a dude with a machete through the Costa Rican jungle, like... Avoiding fertilances and having monkeys uh shriek at us from above and you're just getting like crazy rashes from the bushes because even though there's a guy with a machete ahead of you, you're still, of course, touching all sorts of crazy plants and you're like sliding on your butt down hillsides to try to keep up with the dog and... uh you know, did I mention the snakes? <laughs> so, um, I, I, like you guys can hear the grin on my face. I love this stuff. It's crazy. It's terrible. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely all like type two fun, but, um, for someone like me, um, and hopefully like some of you, it is just a blast. Um, even on, on the worst days when you're like out there and you're freezing cold, it's pouring rain and, and there's snakes everywhere and you're covered in scratches and your dog hasn't found anything for hours, um, or even days, but it's just, it's just such cool work. Um, so we're going to cover all of this in a lot, lot, lot more detail going forward, but I wanted to kind of get the basics out of the way here, kind of catch you guys up to speed on my story. Um, because I don't think I've talked a lot about like my early education and my early passions on this show before. Um, and I wanted to pivot now to talking a little bit more about Canine Conservationists, the nonprofit, and the help that we need. So um, in March 2021, I started putting together um, all the paperwork to get Canine Conservationists filed as a nonprofit. I built the website, blah, blah, blah. And I started looking for a field vehicle for us. So I have been thinking for a while that Canine Conservationists would do well with a van of some sort. That would allow us to have solar power out in the field. It would allow us to um, have higher clearance than my current Prius <laughs> and um, and offset costs uh, for our funders and for our partners because we would be able to provide our own field housing um, and allow the dogs to stay in style and um, hopefully stay in comfort because one of the things that I'm hoping with the sprinter van or with a van in general is that Because the dog spends so much time in it and it moves locations, that should feel more comfortable to the dogs versus staying in a different hotel every time. It also reduces my setup, my packing, etc. I've also lived out of vans before, um, so it just makes a lot of sense. So I set up a Craigslist alert on oh my God, you don't even want to know, like 30 different cities. Just like anything I could think of that was within 10 hours of Missoula and also in between California and Missoula, because I was in California at the time and was thinking that I could just pick something up on the way home, Um, which in retrospect was silly because you can't drive two cars at the same time. (laughs) But um, anyway, so uh, a couple days in, I got an alert. I found the van. It is the van. So it's fully set up there. I bought it from a young couple that had been living out of it for nine months. They were selling it because they had basically depleted their entire savings in order to live out of it for nine months and they needed to go back to work and restart their lives. Um, So it's got solar. It's got a bed. The bed is high enough up that I'm pretty sure I'm going to be able to get some crash proof dog crates underneath it, which is going to be awesome for safety for the dogs as we go out into the field. Um... It has a kitchen um, that's actually really well-stocked. I've got a cute little closet. There's um, I've got a solar shower. It's got a pagoda, so I can uh, set up the dogs in the shade outside of the van as long as the weather's nice. It's just, it's perfect. So I bought it with the understanding that it needed new fuel injectors, which I did know was going to cost a little bit of extra money. But that was also partly why I got such a good deal on it. And I was able to pay for the van out of pocket. Um with, by basically emptying all of my savings, including my, um, I had some money put away in stocks, um, where I basically put my stimulus checks away in stocks and, um, that money had grown a little bit, which was nice. Um, and then my mom did loan me, um, $2,000, um, just to be totally forthcoming. Um, I have to pay her back, but, um, so anyway, so I bought the van and I, um, was really really excited about it. Um, I had a couple friends help me kind of look through it. We got it, um, you know, inspected. Blah blah blah. And again, we you know we knew it needed new fuel injectors. So I dropped it off at a diesel mechanic in Salt Lake City, which is where the van is currently, and um, went on my way. I planned on buying a plane ticket to go down to Salt Lake City and drive it back up to Missoula as soon as it was ready. Except uh, at the time of recording now, like um, four days ago, I got a call from my mechanic and he asked if I was sitting down, (laughs) which is never a good thing to hear when you're on the phone. So I sat down and told him to go ahead and he let me know that it wasn't just the fuel injectors of the van. Um, It actually needed an entire new engine, which is really unusual at the mileage that this van was at. It's only got 190,000 miles and most of these engines are pretty well known for going to four or 500,000 miles. So that is obviously really really bad news. Um and he kind of told me everything that they had done to confirm what the problem was. My um I actually really like this mechanic and he told me, you know, there's nothing we we've actually known about this for a couple of days, but we've been trying to run all the tests and make sure that this was definitely it and that this was on- the only option. Um and he also let me know that there's pretty much no way that the people who sold me the vehicle could have known this unless they had swapped out the fuel injectors, So I don't think that I was, um, being had. Um, so, um, they quoted me at a cost of replacing that engine at up to $24,000, um, which I do not have. Um, I'm going to be totally honest. I have, as I said, emptied my savings in order to buy this field vehicle for my brand new baby nonprofit. And I don't have that. I don't have $24,000 more sitting around. Um, that's, dangerously close to my annual salary at my last job (laughs) um so luckily i have looked around and found a used engine that's going to bring our total costs down to closer to like fifteen thousand dollars which is a lot better um but still more money than i am able to kind of pull out of (laughs) pull out of my bank accounts i guess and um so i am putting together a gofundme and um I'm just kind of coming to you guys asking for help. Um, it's a lot of money. So anything that you can do will help, even if you don't have a cent to give, because I know that times are really, really tough right now. And that buying a field vehicle for conservation dog work seems like one of the least important nonprofits out there. <laughs> Oh, I shouldn't be saying it that way, but you know what I mean. Like there's, there's people out there. Uh, there are other nonprofits out there that also feel so worthy right now. And I know people are really struggling. So even if you can't give it all, um, I would really appreciate you sharing and telling your friends about this and really helping us get that, get out there. Um, and hopefully try to get this field vehicle, um, up and running for us um, and the good news is the engine that I found it's from uh, a rear end collision the van that had it um, originally only had 74,000 miles on it so hopefully that will help this our new field vehicle last us many many years to come and I'm really really excited about it Um, but again, I will drop in the, the links in the show notes for where you can help donate. Um, as I said, we've just sent off our paperwork for 501c3 status. So right now we're doing this through a GoFundMe. And as far as I know, it is not going to be tax deductible. Um, but in the future donations to canine conservationists will be. So that's where we're at. Um, I've, you know, spent a couple of days kind of digesting all of this. Um, I reached out to the original sellers and asked if they could take the van back or if they could do any cost sharing and they they can't. Um, and, you know, that's the risk with a used used vehicle. Um, you know, there's I don't really have any protection. I've looked into lemon laws and all those sorts of things. And, um, yeah, we're we're in kind of a tight spot. Um, but. I, I still feel like we can make this work. Um, I've talked to my board for the nonprofit and they, they agree with this plan. So we're gonna go ahead and do it. Um, so again, I anything that you can do to help, even if it's just sharing this fundraiser, I really, really appreciate it. Um, and um, I think that's it for housekeeping. The, the last thing that I'll kind of say before I sign off here is that you will, um, so the episode that just dropped was Ursa's goodbye episode. The episode that's coming up was actually recorded before I decided to change the podcast over. So it's still going to be the canine conversations you know and love. It's with my dear friend Erin Jones talking about consent and dog training. And we may do a follow up episode or two with her as well um, with questions from our Patreons, our patrons on Patreon. Um, so again, as we're going forward with the canine conservationists, uh, rebrand, you can still expect to hear some of the really cool dog behavior work, um, dog behavior problem solving, all of those sorts of things on this podcast feed. So I hope that you stick around. Um, I haven't written a new outro for the episode, the podcast yet, but, um, so I'm Kayla Fried. You can find me at journeydogtraining.com or canineconservationists.org. Um, anything that you can do to support our fundraising efforts to, um, for our new field vehicle is going to be greatly appreciated. And I do plan on offering some prizes and incentives to our top, um, top donors. So check out the GoFundMe page for more info on that. Thank you guys so much for listening and I will be in your earbuds again soon. Bye.